By the way, happy birthday, Alan. It's, it's Noah's, uh, Matthew's birthday today. Right. And if you double his years and dog years, we're the same age. <laughs> uh, and Dawn's birthday. Man, how many birthdays do we have today? We got a bunch of people. Dawn's birthday too? <clears throat> Well, we don't dub, double hers. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> There's a story told about uh, two uh, longtime golfing buddies, and they decided they were going to head out and, and uh, play a round of golf that day. But they made a decision that they were going to play the ball where it lies. No more of this pick it up and move it to a better spot. You get it? You know, you know sometimes guys will do that. And so they said, that's it, we're, we're going to do this, and they swore to it. And, and, and on the 14th hole, one of them just sliced his ball, and it just careened and went, went off. And, and eventually it stopped right in the middle of the golf path. So they got up to it, the one fellow, he, he reached down to pick it up and move it. The other guy said, no, 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 no. Remember, we were not going to fudge on our lives any, right? We're going we're gonna to play it right where it is. He says, but I'm entitled to by the rules of golf. He says, no, no, no. You said you weren't going to do that, that we were going to play it where it lies. So just kind of disgruntled about it. He went back to the cart, pulled out a seven iron, and, and he gets over there and he starts practicing and he's hitting the pavement where the golf cart goes, and just making sparks and, and scratching up his club, and he's, he's getting miffed. <clears throat> Finally, the guy says, are you going to hit it? He says, yeah, he will. So he does. He gets a swing, and he hits it, and sparks fly, and it, it goes, and it bounces two inches from the hole. He says, oh, man. The other guy's like, that's a great shot. He says, what iron did you use? He said, well, I used your seven iron. <laughs> Yeah, I think it may have been a little bit better if the little grace had been given that day uh, and let them just kind of fudge on some things, but that's not the case. But you know what? God's grace, as an avenue of salvation, sometimes we don't get it either. Sometimes it's seen as being a little bit of conflict because we're also told we're supposed to be obedient, right? And we're supposed to do good and, and live our lives faithful and, and, and trying to be the requirements of, of the law. But when we kind of put these two together, there's a problem. So which is it? Is it living a righteous life by obedience that gets us to heaven or is it the grace of God that gets us there? Or is there a combination of both? That's kind of what I want to talk about today, uh, is this aspect and idea of grace. So what is grace? What is it? What is it all about? And it, often it's defined as unmerited favor or God's divine influence on the hearts and the reflection of life. Others might say that it is divine encouragement of sustenance. Some people have even said, well, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, we've got all of our definitions of what it means. So I thought we'd do, I like doing word studies, and we've been doing some of those. So we're going to do a little word study. So let's go back into the Old Testament first and look at the words that were primarily used when it talks about God's grace. There are two primary words that are used. The first one is chesed. And, and what that means is it means grace or, or loyal love or mercy. It refers to the feelings of loyalty and love that are motivated 
and, and they motivate merciful relationships, compassionate behavior towards somebody else. So this term, chesed, it, it indicates really an essential part of God's character. When he appeared to Moses, God describes himself in Exodus chapter 34 as abounding in chesed. He's abounding in grace. He is closely associated with his covenant and his love for Israel. We see that in Exodus 26. God says that he shows chesed to those who love and obey him. It's a description that is also echoed throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God's chesed is often described as an aspect of his mercy and his compassion. We'll just use the word grace. And appealing to God's grace, really it comes to us, Moses was trying to appeal to God's grace when he was looking at the sinfulness of the people of Israel. And he was beseeching that God would be gracious to his people and not punish them because they deserve it. Another word that is used is the word chen. Now that means grace or favor. It's a pleasing quality or approving or it's affectionate disposition towards someone. So we've got somebody special, and it doesn't matter who they are or what they've done. We, we just like them, and we are compassionate towards them, and we're going to do whatever it takes to make the relationship better. And so that's this aspect of finding favor. Often it is, it is translated favor in the eyes of. All right? So someone has found favor in your eyes. To find favor in someone's eyes, in essence, is really to please that person and to receive benefits from them that maybe you don't even deserve, but because you have found grace or favor in their eyes, it is there. Now, in the New Testament... There are three words that are often used in this aspect of what grace is. The first one, which is the, the noun, the word charis, which is the, the fullness of that term. And everything else derives itself from this word charis. It means grace or goodwill or favor. And it conveys the sense of a gift of kindness or a favor from one person to another. It's something that they are going to do out of this kindness towards them. All right? It can identify the aspect of charm or the quality of being delighted in the eyes of someone else. And so you find favor in them. At times, it's described as an act that is characterized as being generous. Sometimes this term highlights the undeserved nature of a gift. And really the gift of salvation is often described as this term of grace. And it's given not because of the righteousness of the recipient, but because of God's gracious kindness that is expressed in Jesus Christ. So that's charis. There's also charisma, which means something graciously given. It's a gift, something that is, that is given to somebody else because they have found favor in this other person. All right? So these two words really are back-to-back. -back. They're both nouns, but one is the, the aspect of, of bestowing uh, this grace. The other is the specific gift of it as well. Um, oftentimes, the New Testament usually uses this word charisma as, as a gift that's included even in the spiritual gifts. 
that God is going to equip the church, his people with. It's, it's described maybe a person's special calling. Um, it, it's God's gift of salvation that is found through Jesus Christ. And then there's one other New Testament word that is used, and it's called charizomai. It means to give or to forgive. And it's expressed in this. It refers to giving something to someone even when the other person is not going to give you thing in, in return. So there's no reciprocation. You're just giving it and not getting. All right? And this is the gift that God is giving us. It, it, it often is applied to this generous action by one party, really on behalf of somebody else. Now, in the New Testament, the person who receives this gift, it's usually because they've had a debt that needs to be paid, based upon their sinful life it is being forgiven and so somebody else is going to give a gift on behalf of you because there's no way that you can pay to get it out of it so these are the words that are used grace then is exhibited in the desire and in the willingness and in the ability to grant favor as a gift where it isn't deserved they don't they don't deserve it but yet somebody is going to give it to them. So by definition, it includes this gracious act or this manner of gifting somebody else. And really what that is, is that is God's divine influence on our hearts to set forth his plan of redemption. So I want to look at a few things. What does grace do? a bunch of scriptures i'm just going to rattle right through them all right um, but but this is where it's used often in within the new testament and in the old testament as well so first off let's look at genesis chapter 6 verse 8 it says that noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the lord so god liked him god looked at him and saw him and says i mean i like this guy and, and i want he's a special person in my life and so we know what happened in the life of noah matter of fact alan was just talking about the creation well the flood is a major part of what transpired in our world in creation all right in john chapter 1 verse 17 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the embodiment of what grace is. And so in Luke chapter 2 verse, verse 40 it says the child grew and became strong. That's speaking about Jesus. He was filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Acts 4:33 and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. When we don't have the strength to do things, the power of grace sustains us and enables us to do things that we could not do on our own. He moves on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
He says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Peter says that by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter's saying that the gospel message is also the grace of God. And we need to stand firm upon it. We move into the author that wrote Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I mean, grace is used in all sorts of ways, many more ways than just that throughout Scripture. And to understand what grace does, we must recognize the hard truth that through grace, God justifies the wicked and the ungodly. And to me, that's kind of hard to really understand, that, that, that God is going to justify those who are wicked and ungodly. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now hold on. Him who justifies the ungodly. I, I, and I struggle with that. His faith is counted as righteousness. I'm the kind of guy that, that, that likes to get things done, all right, accomplishments. And so you've got to do something to get something done. And if I'm working with somebody who doesn't do anything but just believe that it's going to get done, I struggle with that. How about you? But God is the God that justifies the guy who doesn't get anything done. That's what he's saying here. And his grace is, is poured out to him because he has faith in this righteousness. You see, Scripture not only accepts the charge of God being justifying others who don't deserve it, but Paul is even writing that out, saying, yes, that's, that's true, he does. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God takes himself this title, him that justifies the ungodly. And I think it's intended that we should wonder about this doctrine of grace. Because we are a people of work. We accomplish things with our hands. We don't like to sit back and just think it's going to happen somehow, though we do want it to, without any effort on our part. But we know the difference. Because if it's going to get done... Might as well do it myself, right? I mean, that's who we are a lot of times. But God's grace is different than that. You see, God justifies the unholy man and makes him righteous. And that really is a mystery to me. Why would he do that, not only for me, but for other people that still don't actually work? So how do we get God's grace? Is the availability of God's grace measured by our performance, by the things that we do? I mean, is, is it the more I do, the more grace I get, right? I mean, isn't that how we work? 
The, the more work I get done, the more the boss is going to pay me, right? The more hours I, I spend at it, the, the more money I'm going to make. The more apples I can pick, the more compensation I'm going to get as a result of that. But that's not what's happening here. It's not based upon that. I, I once read this definition. I get just as close to the top of the mountain as I personally can on my own. And it's then that God gives me a little nudge to help me get to the top. And he says that little nudge is grace. I've got a problem with that definition. Because it seems that grace is a supplement to my work, to what I've done. But here's the problem. I can't even get to the mountain let alone the foothills of the mountain. Because of my sin, every step I take, I'm going the wrong direction. All right? There's, it, is, it is unachievable for me to even think that I can do that. So it's not that grace is the supplement to what you do that enables you to accomplish what God wants. It accomplishes what God wants when you can't even do it. That's what grace is so wonderful about. So how do we get this? You know, Isaiah says that, that even our own work, all the effort that we do, all of our righteousness, he says, is really, it, it, it's filthy rags. It, it's not worth anything. So you don't even want to approach the throne of heaven in your dirty garment of sin. None of us can even get near to heaven without grace. And I think this is what it is. We must recognize that in, in spite of all of our efforts to be righteous, we're never going to be righteous. Paul is going to tell us in Romans, the reason we can't be righteous is because we've all sinned. Every one of us. And once you've got the stain of sin in your life, you can't get rid of it. You've ruined it but it's going to need something else to cover it, and that's His grace. And so God provides grace through Jesus Christ. But that's as a gift. It's a gift that is engaged in us through our faith. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, because he tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, not as a result of anything that you can do so that no one may boast. Paul then tells the church at Rome in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, through Him, Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So this grace is given. It's provided for us by God through Jesus as a gift that he wants to give to us. So to kind of pull this together, faith in essence occupies the position of, of a conduit or a channel. Or, and and then, then grace uh, is, is that, that, 
that water, that fountain that flows through that conduit. It, it, just a few weeks back, we were over in, in, in Israel, and along the Mediterranean Sea there in Caesarea Maritime, there is a, an aqueduct that comes in from about 13 miles in the mountains down to the sea to bring fresh water for the people. And, and Herod the Great was a wonderful architectural genius in the things that he did. And so he would bring in fresh water from way out and the declination would just be just enough to get the water where he needed it. And so looking at that aqueduct, that in essence is our faith. All right, it's, it's, it is the conduit that brings the grace of God which is going to sustain us in our life. And so from the time before the fall of Adam and Eve in the very beginning of creation, God already had a plan set in motion of grace because he knew that we were going to blow it. That's, just, that's part of his wonderful foreknowledge of all things. And so he had this plan to save the human race, and the plan of salvation was grace, and that is grace is the favor of God that is not deserved because of our misbehavior. So John writes to us in his gospel, in the first chapter, he kind of describes all this. Beginning in verse 14 through 17, he says, And the Word, which is Jesus, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, he says, John, that's the Baptist, John bore witness about him and he cried out that this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, for from his fullness, that's Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, so we've got to be obedient. But then he says, but grace and truth, those came through Jesus Christ. See, God's plan, he set in motion long before all that. So Paul tells us in Romans 5.21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do we get this faith? How do we become this conduit that allows the grace of God to, to just swell within us? and capture us through faith. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the world needs to hear the truth about Jesus. If they're going to receive the grace of God, they've got to hear it. How are they going to hear it unless somebody tells them? And who's going to tell them? You? You? I hope so. Because through your communicating the wonders of heaven, of God, and displaying that, that in all of his, his majestic authority, he decided to humble himself and enter into this world and to provide a way for us to be forgiven, that's grace. They need to hear that so they can believe in him as well and receive this grace. 
<clears throat> but I'm left with this one question here. How are grace and obedience, which the Old Testament always talked about, how are these two even related? But it's not just the obedience that the Old Testament talks about. When we even dig into Jesus' speaking and to his sermons and into his statements, he tells us we need to be obedient. He tells us we need to do things. And so what do we mean? So how is grace and obedience even connected? Since grace is obtained through faith, yet obedience and works are required, I think we're left with a little bit of a dilemma. It may seem that since grace is a gift and cannot be earned, then our actions, no matter what, they don't matter. So if God's just going to be gracious to you and say you're forgiven then it doesn't matter what you do does it just do what you want because he's going to give you grace but on the other hand scriptures tell us this in matthew chapter 7 verse 21 jesus said not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven he then makes this statement in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I tell you? And in Matthew 7, 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. You see, what Jesus is saying is, it's not just believe in me. He's also saying, you've got to put some action behind all this. Now hold it, I thought you told me grace saves. But Jesus is saying, I'm not going to get to heaven unless I do something. How do these two things work together? I mean, it seems like there's this apparent conflict. But you have to understand that grace is going to steer us towards obedience because of what he does for us as james says do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself you do what it says grace calls us to live a life of obedience i know that there are a lot of people who want to overemphasize grace and for some they say well that's kind of watering down the biblical commands for us to do things paul says in philippians chapter 2 verse 12 he says therefore my beloved as you have always what? Obeyed. Hmm. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, now that doesn't mean that Paul is saying that you can work out your own way to get to heaven. All right? That's not what he's saying because we know we've already blown it. So there's no way of recovering from what we've already destroyed. You can't do enough to get into heaven but paul says you're going to heaven and because you're going to heaven let's keep acting like we're going to heaven and do the things that need to be done that god wants us to do so we continue to work out our faith with fear and trembling this is not to be understood that, that, that we're, any of this is going to happen on our own part. We cannot deny any part of justification of salvation that God is going to do in grace and say, I've done it myself. Where is the wisdom of God in forming this scheme of salvation and then sending his son into this world to effect 
that cause and change, and then after all that, leave it up to us to work our way there. That's not it. Where's the justice of God in accepting an imperfect righteousness in the place of the perfect righteousness that he is going to clothe us in by his own superiority? You see, if salvation is, same, is, is obtained by works, we're not going to get it. We are imperfect, even the best of us, and all our efforts will never be notorious for salvation. Furthermore, if salvation is to be obtained by the works of men, then really the death of Jesus was in vain. He didn't need to die, did he? Because we could do it. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So looking further, we see that God selectively applies grace to those who put their faith in him. Now maybe we can get some understanding of this. In, in the book of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus has a story that's, that's there before them. There are two fellows, he says, that go up to pray. One guy, he's, he's, he's kind of cocky and confident about himself. <laughs> he's boasting and bragging about how good he is and, and his gift. And he goes up and, and he, he, he has this conversation with God. And, and he's thankful that he's not like any of you other people who are sinners, and especially like this other guy over here. And then it's the other guy's turn. And he gets up and he beats his chest, and he can't believe that even God would even listen to him. And he's humbled by it. One of those two men went down to his house justified, and the other one not. Both of the men had faults. One suspected that he was justified because of his goodness. But he wasn't. The other suspected that he was condemned because of his wickedness. But he wasn't. He was justified. I mean, there's a difference here. Does one man have more sins than the other? We don't count sins, remember, not, not in God's standards. One sin, you're guilty of them all. So it doesn't matter how many you kill. It's, it's, it's it. Was one man more superior in his good deeds than the other? Well, we really don't know the answer to that. We just know that, that one thought much more highly of himself than the other. But what it comes down to is their attitude towards God and his fellow man. The unjustified man touted his excellence, even pointing out that he viewed himself better than that other guy. But the justified man, he called upon the mercy of God, and he received grace. So here's the solution to our dilemma of grace. We have said that grace is accessed by faith. But we also know that faith without works, is dead. That's what James tells us. There really is no disharmony between faith and works. They almost make a sentence, all right? Faith works. It does, right? But if we were to break all that down, I think we could look at it this way. Um, Hebrews 11 gives us one example of another, how faith actually works. 
It lays out these fellas, and it starts to tell, by faith, so-and-so, and and by faith, so-and-so. They did these things. They did these things. Over and over again, by faith, so-and-so. Matter of fact, by the time we get towards the end of that chapter, we see that every single action is a justifying action. was never a justifying action, but God takes it that way. And in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, Paul tells Titus that God's grace empowers us and enables us to do the good works. And so he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Paul kind of boils this down in his letter to the church at Corinth in his second letter, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, when he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what the grace of God is doing for us, it is helping us to become obedient to God and to act upon that and do things that are godly and holy and righteous. But you know what? Even though the grace does that, sometimes it leads us to the abuse of grace or the loss of grace. Even though God's grace is free and, and we, may, we can yet fail to obtain it, how can you fail to get something that is free? People are always wanting to get free things, right? But we do. Grace may be abused in more ways than just one. Let's look at at some of them. All right. Some people think that if I just sin with impunity, in other words, I can just keep on sinning and sinning because there's an abundance of grace out there, that it doesn't matter because God loves me and he's going to overlook my sins so Paul anticipated precisely that way of thinking when he writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, it's not in this verse, but his response is, You've got to be kidding. No, it's by no way, no means. No, we don't do that. We don't just keep sinning so that we can get more grace. That's not what we're supposed to do. I mean, the passage was written for the purpose of answering that probable side trail that people are going to want to journey down. You know, if God loves me and he's going to be gracious to me, I can just go do what I want and he's going to cover my sins. He says, no, no, you can't keep doing that. Grace is supposed to enable you and encourage you and empower you to do good things, not bad. What do you think you're doing? And if we take that route of thinking, we're going to be on the wrong road. So Paul says in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? So who would we be obedient to as a slave? He says, 
either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There's no other master. It's either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. I think I want to be a slave to the obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, there is a root of bitterness that becomes a barrier to grace. It's this root of bitterness that, that Hebrews talks about. He says in 12, verse 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Oh, what? I thought it was a free gift. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? That no, quote, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled? What is this root of bitterness? I mean, this root of bitterness is, is this little hidden part that lies within our human heart, and, and it's often born out of anger or pride. It's the root that springs up, to, that brings forth a, a bitter fruit in life and, and the way that we treat other people because of it. It gives trouble and has this defiling nature to it. It's often the occasion of huge problems in churches, let alone in families. Sometimes, like roots, bitterness lies under the surface secretly, undiscovered, and they don't want to tell anybody about it, but how they treat you and how they respond to you is having this poisoning effect on your relationship and everybody becomes embittered. So really bitterness is an enemy of grace. Jonah found out about it. He was told to go preach to the people of Nineveh, and eventually he makes it there by way of the Mediterranean Sea and the up of a whale or a fish or whatever it was. And, and he finally gets there, and he preaches the message that God has told him that they need to repent or he's going to destroy them. And, and so then he goes up, and he sits down on a hill, and he's overlooking this great city, and he's waiting for them to die. It's kind of hot out there in that part of the, the world geographically. And as he began to sweat, he was thinking about this. But somehow God caused a vine, a little bush, kind of to grow up and give him shade. Oh, that's good, you know? But then the scorching heat caused that thing to wither and die. And then Jonah gets a little bitter. <laughs> you know, what about this? You know, and, and God's like, well, I don't get you. Why are you so bitter about all of this? You know, he, he, he became so angry and bitter with God. And God asked him, is it right for you to be so angry? And he says, well, you bet it is. He says, I'm angry, and, and I, have, I do well to be angry. And angry, I'm, enough, I'm angry enough I could die. And God's like, I don't get you. So he, he pointed out that, that he had pity for the plant, <laughs> that it died, that he did nothing to it. He didn't water it. He didn't plant it. He did nothing to it to provide for himself in the shade. But by the grace of God, he was shaded. He says, you have pity for this plant for yourself, but you don't even have pity for the 120,000 people who live down there in Nineveh who don't even know their right hand from their left. Well, who are those people? 
children and infants. And you want me to destroy all those people because you don't like them. Jonah even says, well, yeah, I knew you were a gracious God. You were slow to anger and abounding in compassion and love. He's gracious to us, too. See, we make ourselves deserving of severe punishments by trampling on God's grace. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28 to 29 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. All right? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? I suggest that there is a very powerful connection between God's grace and the water of life. Sometimes I wonder if they are one and the same. Both are free, and both of them are abundantly available. Matter of fact, Jesus offered this water of life to a woman that he met in Samaria at a well who was coming to, to draw water for that day. And, 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 and he wanted to drink from her, and, and, and she's like, well, are you asking me? He said, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water, and I'd give you some water that wells up into eternal life. And that if you drink of that water that I could give you, you'll never thirst again. And, and it's free. Just like grace is free, this water is free. You know, you may know someone like that woman. In fact, you may be that woman or a man like her that you're searching for the wrong sustenance of life. The grace of God is sufficient. And that's really what we need. Jesus answered that woman in John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And we turn into the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit... And the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. You see, the faith that brings us to God's grace teaches us to obey Him. In baptism, being born again as a new creature, having a new life, Bearing the old life of sin behind, and as an act of, of faith and obedience to Him, we, we enter the kingdom, becoming part of the body of Christ, where He is the head, and we put on Christ, and we are laying aside our former life, and we're forfeiting what we deserve, and, and we're receiving the blessing in which He gives us a new life, being born again, a new, a new man, a new woman, saved by grace. Through faith. And if you really want the grace of God and if you want to experience the fullness of it, I invite you to come. I invite you to put your faith in Him. I invite you to be baptized, to be clothed in Christ. 
to make it a difference, not by anything that you could ever do to earn heaven because you can't. Let his work get you there. That's grace. Let's pray. Father, we are we're amazed that you would you would love us and that we would find favor in your eyes. Father, that you would want to cover over my sins in spite of what I've done, in spite of who I am. Help me to realize there's nothing I can do that's going to make you say, yes, come on in. You deserve heaven. But it's that wonderful gift that you have prepared well in advance, even for my birth, that I would need to be forgiven, that I would need your grace. The gift of my salvation found only in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.